Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1140, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning. It is 8.30 on Wall Street. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keen. Our economic indicators are brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. When it's time to change the conversation, talk with a broker-dealer, RIA, that's ready to listen. Call 866-462-3638 or visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. Here's Vinny Del Judes at the First Word Desk with the jobless claims numbers. Good morning, Michael. Jobless claims down by 6,000 last week to 278,000, roughly in line with Wall Street estimates. Jobless claims below the critical 300,000 mark for more than a year now. We also have data from the Philadelphia Fed, the Regional Business Index, a negative reading, minus 1.8 in May. Economists surveyed by Bloomberg and anticipated a positive reading. Again, jobless claims, the main report at this hour, down to 278,000. At the Bloomberg First Word Desk, I'm Vinny Del Judice. Let's go back to Washington and New York. Thank you, Vinny. Well, jobless claims, uh, Philly Fed, uh, the Chicago Fed activity index, all uh, what you might consider um, tertiary in, uh, information right now. Tertiary data, jobless claims are important, but they're not uh, moving out of a range they have been in. But every bit of data is going to be important to a Federal Reserve that says it is data dependent, and if the data come in as they expect it, they would be inclined to raise rates in June. Will they do that? Jeffrey Lacker is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, and he's been nice enough to drive up here to Washington. Join us in the Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom to uh, talk about the minutes yesterday and the uh, direction of the Fed. So, uh, surprise! <laughs> you guys caught the markets uh, unaware. Uh, mm-hmm. Somebody said you hit them upside the hay, as, <laughs> as they say. Uh, rather rapid adjustment in the markets after uh-huh. yesterday's Fed minutes. Uh, why do you think investors have ignored the Fed for so long? Uh, after the April meeting, they basically priced out the Fed doing anything until 2017. So my sense of things is that um, markets took the wrong signal from us pausing in, in March and April. Uh, the sense I got is that they, their interpretation was that we, uh, that, that the, the threshold we have for what it takes to get us to pause in the rate increases that in December we, uh, outlined we sort of expected to see this year, uh, was fairly low. And, uh, I think they set it too low. And, uh, so I, I think they just overestimated how likely we were to pause for the rest of the year. Uh, your old friend and uh, predecessor at the Richmond Fed in, in the um, research job, uh, Marvin Goodfriend, was just on with us suggesting that the Fed has a credibility problem because it has set the markets up for a rate increase a number of times and then not followed through. The broader context here is that all of our benchmarks, he talked about a rule, but, you know, these are really um, uh, measures of, of where interest rates would otherwise be, would have been in the past if we're behaving uh, the way we usually behave when growth, employment and inflation are where they are now. They're all well above where we are now. So it's pretty clear that we're, we're departing relatively substantially from uh, patterns of past behavior that have been successful for us. Um, I think he's right that in times we've gotten in trouble in the 
past have, have usually been episodes where we're about to increase rates or we're in the midst of increasing rates and uh, other things distract us, uh, other things dissuade us, um, and uh, we get a little bit behind the curve. I think that happened uh, has happened a couple of times in the last couple of decades. Well, there's two issues there. One is where you are relative to inflation. The other is uh, Fed credibility. Uh, have you failed in communications? Well, um, so to the extent that markets, um, you know, misunderstood the meaning of, of our, us pausing in March and April, I think that might have been the case. I think you can, in hindsight, you can argue that. The Fed's decisions uh, to pause in January, March, and April, would you say they were a mistake? You're not a voter this year, so we don't have your official mm-hmm. vote, but uh, mm-hmm. suggestions from you in your uh, public remarks are that you would have approved of raising rates already. I certainly supported the rate increase at the April meeting, um, and I, I think a, a rate increase at the March meeting would have been um, perfectly reasonable as well. Um, so I, I think that would have kept us on course. Uh, I think markets uh, you know, wouldn't have been as confused about our intentions for the rest of the year. If uh, uh, if we are to believe the minutes, uh, more than two people suggested a rate increase at the April meeting would have been acceptable. I know you're not going to speak for others on the Fed, but it does raise the question of whether Janet Yellen has some sort of rebellion on her hands, whether uh, the board is not very united over this question. Well, as you know, the committee's always had a, uh, encompassed a range of views. It's a real strength of the committee. Uh, diverse views are brought to bear. We all expect each other to bring our, our best game, bring our best independent analysis of what we should do. Um, people didn't bring different perspectives, different orientations. Um, so I wouldn't characterize things as a rebellion by any means. I think we have the usual um, uh, diversity of views in the committee right now. Well, uh, usual diversity is is a fairly broad phrase for I mean, it's a binary decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, is the raise rates camp growing? Is it uh, is it uh, that the FOMC is now uh, broadly in favor if the data come through with a rate increase? I think the minutes did a good job of of uh, uh, conveying the breadth of expectation within the committee um, about. Um, uh, what they'd likely to, uh, what they would be likely to favor doing in June, given the data coming in as expected. I thought that passage was uh, clear. I thought it was accurate. I thought it was a good reflection of of the extent to which, yeah, I think if we did come in with data that along the lines we're expecting a pickup growth in the second quarter, inflation kind of remaining where it is now or maybe advancing further towards 2%, you know, measured by the PCE index. Um, I think that um, I think the case would be very strong for raising rates in June as well. Well, that's an interesting point you just made about inflation. Uh, it doesn't have to go up. You think it just has to remain approximately where it is now. We get the PCE number on mm-hmm. May 31st. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to move even higher. For, uh, a yeah. Move. So we get, we had this um, a couple of strong inflation months on uh, January and February, um, and then uh, a little bit weaker in March. Um, April CPI looks uh, stronger than bef- than April, uh, than March, uh, suggesting um, PCE uh, could be stronger. On a year over year basis, we have some strong numbers falling off of the twelve month average, moving average, and so um, that suggests that we might get. Uh, inflation readings that on a 12-month basis don't move much, up, up much, even though the monthly numbers are, are firmer uh, than they had been in the middle of last year. And so just by the algebra of it, um, it I, I think uh, it, uh, 
12 month numbers that don't decline from here, um, I think are going to reflect um, good progress towards 2%. We are uh, Bloomberg Surveillance, and we're talking with Jeffrey Lacker, the president of the Richmond Fed, live from the Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. Uh, the Federal Reserve noted in uh, the earlier part of this year that global risks were the reason for them holding off on rate increases. Uh, in the April meeting, the minutes show that the they felt global risk had diminished, but a lot of people thought they were still there. So what's changed enough to suggest that you can go ahead in June if the global risks are still out there? So I, I see the uh, risks from global economic and financial developments as having substantially and virtually entirely um, dissipated. I, th- I think there, there always are some risks out there, but I think that relative to times in the past when we've we've been able to – Hold our thoughts about them uh, and uh, recognize them, but move ahead anyway. I think they're they're about where they you know at, at a certain nominal level. Um, so I, I don't think they're at a level that w- should dissuade us. I you know as I said, I thought we should raise rates in April. I didn't think global risks at that point po- posed enough threat to the U.S. economy that uh, we needed uh, insurance in the form of a longer delay in rate increases. Moody's out with a report last night. Uh, they cut their U.S. growth forecast for the year, arguing that investors and policymakers are underestimating the slowdown in China and its potential to have mm-hmm. a significant impact on markets and global demand. It's an interesting uh, point of view. Um, you know, certainly there's um, you know uncertainty about the extent to which they can maintain the growth process they've been. Um, you know, showing for the last uh, couple of decades. Uh, it's been breathtaking, the pace of their GDP growth. Um, they seem to have managed to uh, keep growth going so far this year. Um, you know, by hook or by crook might be a good phrase for it. Um, and um, But they seem to have the capacity to do so going forward as well. Um, and uh, so it, it's not clear it's going to falter substantially from here. And I think the risks to Chinese growth look certainly less than they were several months ago. The other big question for people is the dollar. Uh, the dollar rallied after the minutes came out. How concerned are you that it does have the impact that uh, the Fed cited at the January meeting and on that it will slow growth in the United States? So last year we saw a sustained trend in the dollar, um, and uh, this year we there's been some retrenchment and moved back. Um, you know, a, a five or ten percent move would be pretty notable from here. It'd be pretty unusual and pretty unexpected. Um, so at this point, I'm not expecting the path of the dollar over the remainder of the year to pose a big threat to U.S. growth. It's notable, I think, that we have been able to absorb um, uh, the impact of the dollar change last year in manufacturing. And still turn in reasonable growth numbers, I think. Still see labor markets tighten substantially. Still see consumer spending expand substantially. Uh, so I think that's a, an indicator of the extent to which uh, export-oriented manufacturing, although it's important to a lot of people, um, is a, a small enough fraction of the economy that we can we can have some weakness there and still see strength. Looks like real rates ought to be um, around uh, 1% or so, and we ought to be moving towards – uh, that that level, um, positive 1%. Um, and that's a measure of sort of how far behind we are. In nominal terms, I think, you know, if you factor in a, um, you know, let's say inflation's 1.5% right now. Um, I, you know, our benchmarks are that inflation, that the interest rate, nominal interest rate should be between 2 and 3. And um, we're, we're significantly behind that right now. 
Jeffrey Lacker is with us from the uh, Richmond Fed. We're going to go straight through there enjoying this interview so much here on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, assuming there's no black swan, the data are okay, but you want to pause because of Brexit or some uh, reason in June. Would you favor then in terms of uh, communication with the market an October-like promise that you will go in July? Uh, what do you mean by October-like promise? Well, in October, at the, uh, mm-hmm. in the Fed statement in October, you basically oh, said we're going gotcha. to move into December. Right, right, right. Sort of lay down a strong marker. Um, yeah, that's one way we could do it. I mean, we can, you know, we should say what we think, say what we know, um, don't say what we don't know. So, um, you know, certainly if in a Brexit-type pause scenario in, Jan- in June, that's the kind of thing that would materialize. But I have to emphasize, I, I don't think it's likely. It doesn't at this point look at all likely that – um, you know, Brexit's going to be enough of a risk in June, to me at least, um, to stay our hand. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier about the uh, minute suggestion that uh, there were members who felt that, uh, based on standard benchmarks like policy rules, the Fed's behind the curve. And I think you told us mm-hmm. <laughs> that you would, I mean, you were one of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how far behind are we? Well, you know, as I said significantly, I know it's um, about a year or two ago these benchmarks. Um, rose above zero. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that's why last year was the beginning of the sense that, yes, it's time to raise rates. Uh, you know, that was the analytics behind it. People often ask, well, you know, how do you know when to raise rates? And that was it. Uh, we paused last year. We sort of delayed getting started uh, for various reasons. Um, and then some other reasons came along and we paused some more. Uh, we got started in December then January and February and the turmoil in markets and uh, the risks people saw from the, on the global front um, led us to pause again. Meanwhile, those benchmarks have kept rising because they're based on real things, inflation, um, employment. Uh, and uh, so we're, we're behind. And, you know, as I said, there have been times in the past when f- purely financial market phenomenon – uh, that, you know, are forward looking, but still they're just financial market jitters, um, have stayed our hand. 1998 and 1999 is a great example. Uh, that you had the Russian debt default, you had some turmoil in financial markets, you had the LTCM episode, and we cut interest rates three times in the fall. We took our time turning around and recovering those in 99. And I think in hindsight, that's a clear case of us, um, you know, cutting too much, easing too much in, in response to purely financial market phenomena. Uh, and um, we got behind the curve in 99, and, and arguably that contributed to the sequence over the course of 2000, 2001, 2002 that led to, to what we saw then. We don't know what your dot is on the, on the dot plot, but if we are... to say <laughs> <laughs> I think they'd let you, but... Uh, <laughs> If we are behind on inflation, mm-hmm. does that change your view of how many times and how quickly the Fed needs to raise rates? Uh, yes. Yeah. So I've been, um, you know, I was comfortable with the December um, projection um, of the sort of the median SEP projection of four rate increases this year. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think the data suggests, you know, the U.S. economy suggests much of a change in views about about the appropriateness of that. Um, I'd like to get, um, you know, as close to that as we can by the end of the year. You can, you can get back what we've lost, in other words. Yeah. So we're in this, this, this process of, of, of pausing and delaying, um, 
has runs the risk of becoming a one-way street, uh, sort of a ratchet effect, where when 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 some risks arise, we delay, but when the risks subside, we shouldn't just start raising again. We need to get back on the path we thought we were going to be on. Uh, so, um, you know, instead we seem to be in this this process of delaying, and then we people expect us to start increasing again. But we'll never get back to the path we thought we we thought was appropriate in December uh, if we do that. And I, I think that kind of one way ratchet effect has some some real risks to it. Well, you talk about uh, a, a one way effect. Janet Yellen has argued asymmetry is a real problem for the Fed. It's much easier to deal with inflation than deflation. Uh, how does that fit into the scenario now? I'm uh, I'm not in the camp of being really confident about. Um, how to handle uh, an erosion of um, inflation expectations on the high side. We haven't seen it um, the, and in a long time. And when we did see it, the, the environment was so different. The late 1960s, when inflation got away from us, uh, we had some little inflation scares um, back in uh, the 1980s, 1990s. Marvin documented those very well in some some work he did in the 1990s um, and emphasized the importance of getting on top of those. But each one of them was very different, and, and it came in a different context, had a different uh, genesis. If it happened again, it would it would be very different. And so I'm, you know, I'm not um, I'm not sanguine about being able to handle it very easily. Mentioned uh, in our conversation with Marvin Goodfriend, uh, the story on the Bloomberg today, where uh, in a fascinating interview with Lars Rody, the uh, Danish central bank governor, he suggested that uh, maybe there is something different about the link between monetary policy and inflation these days, because there's no demand out there. Um, so I, you know, I agree with Marvin. I was listening in on his, um, some of his interview. Um, I agree. I don't think there's a demand problem in the United States. I think the fundamentals are strong for U.S. growth. Uh, productivity growth is low, but, um, you know, nonetheless, it's there and there, there are innovations taking place and there are, uh, advances being made that are pushing real incomes up. Uh, and so I mean, you've seen American consumers, uh, act with a fair amount of confidence, uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, and so I don't think it's a demand issue in the United States. I have to shift gears a little bit and bring in some politics. Um, I know Fed officials never admit that political pressure will affect policy decisions, but are you at least worried about the Fed bashing on the campaign trail now? Uh, that always makes me nervous. It was an issue in 2012 as well. Um, we are a scrupulously nonpartisan institution. And I think if you read the transcripts, it's very easy to see. It plays no role in what we do. Um, you know, I, I, I like it when I hear uh, on the campaign trail some respect for um, the, the Fed's independence, the importance of the independence of monetary policy. I think we've seen historically in the United States the danger of um, a Federal Reserve that's um, excessively sensitive to um, politicians and uh, their interests um, because that can tilt monetary policy in a direction that's um, focused on the short run to the detriment of long run. Uh, missions like price stability. Well, they're uh, even leaving the presidential candidates out of it. A lot of people up on Capitol Hill suggesting we should change the governance structure of the Fed. Uh, you're pushing back strongly against that. So our governance structure um, strikes people as peculiar, but um, there's a logic to it. It came out of the fact that we were founded as a, a network of 12 clearinghouses 
uh, universal membership instead of just restricted to a club in a city like New York and Chicago. Um, and um, the the natural governance model for a clearinghouse is a, it's a joint venture of the banking industry. And uh, so bankers uh, own your capital and they sit on your board and elect your members. Wilson, the, the great progressive um, insisted on a, a board of governors, a, a technocratic uh, federal agency to oversee this. And um, so the board of governors has responsibility for three of our directors out of nine. Um, our governance structure serves a very valuable purpose. It's a hybrid public-private governance structure. Um, and that's played an important role in the independence of monetary policy in the U.S. I'm open to uh, considering other ideas, um, but um, for me, it's going to be important that they preserve monetary policy independence, and I haven't heard of a, a governance uh, reform proposal that I think does that. Very very quickly, let me ask you a uh, last question. Donald Trump says he'd get rid of Janet Yellen and appoint someone who shares his views on interest rates and policy. Uh, what would that mean for Fed credibility? Um, so I, I think it would be problematic and, and uh, for a, um, a, a presidential candidate to dismiss a, a Fed chair on the basis solely of the perceived party affiliation. Jeffrey Lecker, thank you very much for joining us today. He's the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond and, of course, the Fed, suggesting that we are going to uh, be looking to the uh, June meeting, June 15th, and we'll see how um, the, the Fed votes. Jeff doesn't have a vote this time, so he gets to avoid <laughs> the public. I'm a mere participant. <laughs> a participant as opposed to a member. Tom Keene is always mm. a participant and a member of Bloomberg Surveillance. Tom, uh, how are the markets doing? As uh, Well, Lacker I'm talks. not sure if you move the market or Jeff Lacker move the market, but one of you move the market. The two-year yield, 0.9083. A spike up off economic data, but then, uh, Mike, a real advance on what we heard from Dr. Lacker. Uh, no question about that is uh, yields move higher. Uh, off the tone uh, that we heard as well. Futures were negative seven, doing better off buoyant Walmart earnings, which I guess somewhat links into Mr. Lacker's uh, optimism on uh, the American demand economy, on our innovation, on our ability to move forward. So maybe that's a, a weak linkage into the equity markets as well. We will give you more on economics, finance, investment, and on our international relations and, of course, across all of Bloomberg Radio Updates on the plane crash in the Mediterranean of Egypt Air. Michael McKee in Washington. I'm Tom Keene in New York. Bloomberg Surveillance.